It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who spent an afternoon clicking refresh to try to get their kids' vaccine appointments. <laughs> Yeah, also, if you spent the afternoon listening to a certain um, meeting, although I was only catching it in bits because I was working. I Yeah, I was working too. I did not get to catch any of it. Certain meeting that will be uncovered later on in this podcast. In depth. <laughs> if that's you, you're in the right place. If it's not you, you're still in the right place. Mm. My name... My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Munster, a pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And as you may have guessed, we are going to be talking about the ACIP meeting that took place on Wednesday, May 12th, 2021, that recommended that children between the ages of 12 and 15 be allowed to receive the two-dose Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Yay! Along with a (laughs) couple other recommendations. So Mm -hmm. it's good news. My soon-to-be 13-year-old is very excited. He -hmm. wanted to know if we could go today to get the vaccine. So he is all about being protected. And I think there are scores of adolescents and their parents who feel likewise across the country. Patsy Stinchfield is a nurse practitioner. And she is also with a specialty in infectious diseases and pediatrics. Um, She is the first nurse ever to serve on the ACIP um, committee, which is the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And she is a person who lives in my neighborhood and an all-around great human being. So we're going to have a great talk with Patsy. She is able to break things down in such an easy and personable way for people. So I think that she's the perfect person to have at this juncture. And then, of course, Nathan, um, your experiences with kids and COVID will be really key right now, too, as we're deciding, you know, really, should I protect my child against COVID? Yeah, I'm excited to talk to her. This is one of those rare times where we are actually doing the intro, having not done the interviews. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we we really will see. We have no idea. It could be nope. a catastrophe. Good. We don't know. Hang on to your hats. Right. If it's a catastrophe, we're still putting it out there. We don't know. I mean, something is coming after this. If you're listening to this, there's something there. Exactly. So you might want to just stick around and see what happens. Even if it's just, you know, our editor, Kevin, saying, sorry, folks, they they told me (laughs) just to come on here and tell you there's nothing more. We'll interview Kevin. I mean, we should. (laughs) Okay, Nathan, what's your around the web? Uh, I want to talk a little bit. There's this guy named Tucker Carlson who said some things that I want to talk about. So. Oh, yeah, he's um, terrible. Yeah. So uh, I will say that I don't follow cable news of any station i honestly don't have i have a basic working understanding of who kind of the hosts are at different stations and i'm seriously like from fox news to cnn to msnbc whatever i only vaguely know about the shows i've never watched any of them 
because I don't really watch just that kind of TV. Um, but uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News did a piece where he really, really laid into the high notes of anti-vaccine um, canards. Just all the usual things that you see, especially around COVID, got into VAERS. And the thrust of this was him talking about how there are more VAERS reports of death uh, for the COVID vaccine, many times more. Uh, than you see then for other vaccines and so then launched into like this whole the old anti-vaccine myths about like okay well these are also underreported so you never know how many times more there are of th of people dying from this vaccine etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was a really i think one of the worst pieces i've ever seen mm -hmm. in that it is in a more mainstream audience and saying more blatantly anti-vaccine things than you normally see less of uh less of that um massaging the language and you know just asking questions a lot more of the mm -hmm. more direct like clearly trying to make links between this vaccine and deaths which are not caused by this vaccine um and so i thought that was it was very uh it was really awful. And I think it's going to cause damage mm -hmm. in terms of the fact that we need people to get this vaccine on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. But I do want to talk a little bit about what was brought up there. So if people listening to this podcast probably are familiar with the fact that VAERS, which is a reporting system for events that occur after a vaccine, not necessarily because of a vaccine, that that's not something that we can use in the way that Tucker Carlson did to try to imply anything about any causation. What the pushback then will come is, um, but isn't the fact that there's so many more times of, of deaths being reported, isn't that a flag? Isn't that something scary? And the reality is no, because the whole thing, the whole of VAERS cannot be used for this purpose. The only purpose that VAERS can have is if, is for experts at CDC or other actual experts to be able to uh, divine out red flags from this data that actually show statistically something that you're unlikely to see. That's going to be really difficult in this situation because COVID vaccine is unlike the situation with COVID vaccine is unlike the situation with other vaccines. And so if the question is why are we seeing more reports from COVID vaccine than other vaccines, there's actually a lot of good reasons why that is. VAERS reports, because they are reported and it's a passive reporting system, they're just voluntarily reported by people and can be reported by anybody. They're going to be very subjected to other forces causing more reports or fewer reports. And we saw this with HPV vaccine. When HPV vaccine was brand new, just large, large numbers of reports of things to VAERS. And over time, as people got more accustomed to the HPV vaccine and it became less scary, less quote-unquote controversial, those uh, reports to VAERS just tailed off and you know went down to very low levels. We're talking right now about a vaccine that is on the forefront of everybody's mind. Everybody's thinking about COVID vaccine. Is the COVID vaccine safe? You're hearing all kinds of ramp up from anti-vaccine movement, the anti-vaccine movement trying to get people to think it's unsafe. Of course, there's going to be more reports of things that happen after a vaccine that are not necessarily caused by the vaccine, including deaths. 
We're also giving this vaccine to a uh, parts of the population, older ages, as well as medically vulnerable people who are going to independently have an increased risk of an adverse, out, out, adverse outcome, including death, at some point following getting their vaccine, just completely by coincidence. So you're going to see that. And then you also have this uh, dedicated system called vSafe that pretty much everybody, I don't know what the percentage of people that are being given information about vSafe is, but it's intended for everybody who gets COVID vaccine to know about vSafe, which is basically a CDC text-based uh, kind of app slash site that solic it, it texts you and it asks you to give it information and asks you if you're having any kind of adverse event and then it will tell you how to report that. So all of those things together, of course, we're seeing, you know, order of magnitude more reports of things, including deaths, than other vaccines. But when we actually look at the data and and people watch the mon the the reports, we're not seeing evidence that there are is actually a concern about safety with this vaccine. These deaths are not caused by the vaccine. In fact, there has yet to be a proven death uh, from one of the mRNA vaccines. So that was my whole rant. But there's very good reason why we're seeing what we're seeing, and that is far more logical than the kinds of things that people are trying to imply um, very disingenuously. So I need to challenge you on some of that. Go. So I know that with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they looked at VARES and they were like, oh, hey, look, mm -hmm. here are these eight people who had a specific type of blood clot in their brain mm -hmm. while also having, you know, this low platelet thing going on. Um, let's pause the vaccine. They did that, but I think that's just greater evidence that they wouldn't notice if there were a hundred thousand people dying and various like that. Like it would just like they were looking for those eight right. people, and so clearly that proves that the mm -hmm. deaths are real. So, <laughs> but that's what they were able. Okay, so the issue here is that. I'm, be when you're I'm being about, facetious no, for the I folks get at it. home. Yes. <laughs> when you're looking at these kinds of death reports, you're going to see a huge variety of things, right? You're going to see everything from a car accident to all these different kinds of deaths. When they're looking for a specific spike or a specific signal from a very specific kind of diagnosis, that's a different issue. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if they're worried and watching that and wondering, okay, we can compare these to the incident that you might see in the general population. Or if we're seeing increased reports across the board of things, we can compare these specific kinds of clots to other relatively rare kinds of adverse outcomes. And if we're seeing more of those, and I'm kind of talking above my pay grade here. I'm no epidemiologist, but hmm. these are the kinds of things that an actual trained statistician epidemiologist can look for that Tucker Carlson is not doing when he just kind of casts a, you know, when he paints with a broad brush and starts talking about these adverse events. That's exactly what VARES is for. And one of the things that gets me is people will often very, you know, people that are on our side about vaccines like to trash VARES as if VARES is useless. It's not. It's extremely important. It's extremely useful and can detect 
red flags for relatively rare events, but it cannot be used by the general public to look at numbers of events and say, this is dangerous. And that's not even getting into the whole 1% myth that the anti-vaxxers like to say that it only records 1%. Right. I'd actually like events. to tackle that one because about a year or so ago, um, I, I just decided, I was like, this 1% myth, <laughs> it's always, there's, you know, Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson just said there was a study, but usually right. the anti-vaxxers say there was a Harvard study, mm -hmm. which, which is also untrue. There yeah. wasn't a study, there was a healthcare system called Harvard Pilgrim mm -hmm. that did, between the years, I think it was like, 2007 and 2010 they did a review of their electronic medical records and compared it to the number of VAERS reports coming out of their system and th they showed that not enough reports were being made. That doesn't mean that they weren't reporting deaths, right? It was just that the electronic medical records were suggesting that there needed to be more reports than were being made. And so the few things are important here, you know, 2007 to 2010, reporting to VAERS was different. The CDC actually went through and made it easier to do that online for anyone mm -hmm. or by phone. Um, second of all, it, it wasn't Harvard. <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> I just, I just really want to say that, and it has absolutely no bearing with how many deaths are being reported to VARES. Just none. It's not in the same universe. So the, it's even this one percent is even less, more abstracted from it than that. So, yeah. So they were given this Harvard Pilgrim team was given a grant to help develop to to think about developing a system of a system to help get more you know for for reporting to VAERS for doctors basically so they did this and that 1% is, is and they didn't do a published study or anything all that we're seeing and what anti-vaxxers are getting this 1% number from is this report that's i think i don't even know if it was officially filed it's just like a pdf mm -hmm. <laughs> and that 1%, it's mentioned in that report. That is not the results of their finding. That is written in there as background material and assumed as true in right. the report. A guy from who's writing this grant wrote that in there. Where does that come from? This has been around for a long time. I I, I don't have the the, the uh, studies pulled up in front of me, but I, was, I remember a decade ago when you and I were first getting into this interest, um, trying to run this down. And when you actually go to what that 1%, the kernel of truth of the 1%, you and you go back to the, you finally find some um, documentation of this and, and references, it goes back to a, if I remember correctly, and I might mess up some of the details, a study specifically looking at FDA reports for drug adverse events in Rhode Island in like 1991. I'm not making any of that up. Mm -hmm. That's the origin of the 1%, that only 1% of drug reactions were reported to the FDA in one state 30 years ago. That's the 1%. So from that, anti-vaccine myth has extrapolated this idea that VAERS reports are only reported at a 1% rate. Uh, and it's just absolutely 
untrue. Now, what percent are VARES reports done? That's really difficult to nail down because what do you call, when we're talking about things that aren't actually necessarily reactions, what do you call an event? How do you measure that? How do you know what percent is being reported? What we do know is that things that are relatively mild, rashes, fever, they're not very often reported. Nobody's calling, filing a VARES report every time that they have a, you know, a lot of pain at the site of injection, uh, rarely, right? Mm -hmm. And we also know from studies that more serious adverse events are better reported, not 100%, but um, the more serious the event, the better reported it is. So there's underreporting, sure, but it's not an order of magnitude or two off. There's also another study that actually looked at and said, you know, when we showed experts all these VARES reports, uh, a cross-section of VARES reports, they only, they, they determined that only about 3% were definitely caused by a vaccine. And I think somewhere around less than half were likely caused. So again, I, I might mess up some of those details because I don't have that paper in front of me, but. Yeah, I'll put a link in the. Yeah. I, I also just want to mention that I did a Twitter thread about Tucker Carlson last week. And I'll put, you know. I've got uh, something from Vince Ianelli, Dr. Vince mm -hmm. Ianelli, about the 1% claim, and my Twitter thread sort of breaks down the whole thing uh, about Tucker Carlson. But I want to turn real quick to my Around the Web, because it's weird, and it's not really discussable, but I, it exists on the internet, and I think that we should talk about it. Oh, boy. When you are on Facebook now and someone's talking about COVID-19 vaccines, Facebook puts, you know, when you're making a comment and mm -hmm. it's like, you know, maybe you want to put a picture, maybe you want to put a GIF, maybe you want to put an emoji, like it gives you those little things that you can click on. Well, now maybe you want to put a fact about COVID-19 is one of the mm -hmm. things you can do. Not on every thread, but on some of them. And so you, cl you click on that, and it gives you, like, this menu of things that you can just, like, tap, and then it just appears in the thread. And the one I discovered today is the very important fact that you can't make your own COVID-19 vaccines. <laughs> and there was a source. Mm. The source was the World Health Organization. How do you prove a negative World Health Organization? Tell me that. I mean, right? Maybe I know <laughs> how know? to maybe I know how to make mRNA and put it in a lipid. Right? Maybe I just get lucky. Could happen. It's if, possible. I mean, I watched Outlander and yeah, she like thousand monkeys on typewriters will give me the right genetic sequence. Right. If and out then yeah. If the doctor on Outlander can figure out how to make penicillin by just molding up a whole bunch of bread, I right. think I think I can like sneeze on my cat and make mRNA or something. Yeah. WHO. Yeah. What do they know? <laughs> All right. Um, when we come back, we're going to be talking to the ever delightful and wonderful Patsy Stinchfield. We now welcome Patsy Stinchfield, who is a pediatric nurse practitioner, an infectious disease specialist, a 
big time smarty pants, a St. Paul person, and an all around great human being. Patsy is the liaison for NAPNAP, which is the National Association of Nurse Practitioners, of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, sorry. And she has been on ACIP for a while. Uh, she was the first nurse to be a voting member on ACIP. She really uh, blazed that trail for nurses and she's wonderful. And um, whenever I end up in the ER with my kid, she has brought me a cup of real coffee instead of the awful vending machine coffee. So we all love Patsy. Welcome, Patsy. Thank you so much, Karen. It's really good to talk with you. Absolutely. You've had a long day. Can you give us the high level two sentence. This is what ACIP did today. Yeah, it was a big day. CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. We uh, the, the headline is vaccines against COVID now approved for 12 through 15 year olds. So anyone 12 years of age and over should now get vaccinated. And that's fabulous. We've been waiting for that for a long time. Yes. Have I have been just Waiting for the moment that, that that was announced and now finally recommended. It's awesome. Do you have some of those humans in your house, 12 through 15? Mm -hmm. I sure do too. Both yep. have at least one human mm -hmm. in the house. That's and, awesome. And um, yeah, and that's been, I think uh, Karen was saying also that this has been pretty exciting for them, that they're both ready to get that shot and get that over with. Yeah. We've been hearing how hard it is for families where mom and dad are vaccinated, you know, older teenager, and then, you know, 13 year olds like, Hey, what about me? So today is a good day for, for those families that have been struggling on uh, the rules about masks and unmasked and those kinds of things. So it's, it's good all the way around. I'm really, really thrilled with it. And it was a unanimous vote. There was one person who recused herself because she's a very smart vaccine researcher and has done some work with COVID vaccine research. All the other uh, individuals voted yes. So that was great. So before we turn to that, because I do want to ask you a lot more about that, because it sounds like it was kind of a slam dunk. Um, before we get to that, I want to just back up and think about COVID and kids, because you both work with kids. Um, you know, Nathan's at Blank Children's Hospital and Patsy's at Children's um, Minnesota, which is a ginormous children's system. And she's in charge of two big, big children's hospitals. I shouldn't say she's in charge of the hospitals, but in my brain, she is. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people feel like COVID is just not a big deal for kids. And I'm wondering if that is true based on what you see in clinic and in the hospital. You know, it's one of the most persistent myths related to COVID is that kids do fine with COVID. It's a bad call to get over. It's no big deal. That is false. Um, little kids, middle school kids, teenagers can have really, really severe COVID. And when you work in a children's hospital, like with influenza, you see the worst of the worst. Uh, like with a lot of our vaccine preventable diseases, and you just can't get these kids out of your mind. Um, and you would do whatever you can to get them protected. So they did give some statistics today. Uh, Dr. Oliver just did a marvelous job and saying, you know, as you, as we have this 
template you have to prove scientists are skeptical we question do we need this you know what is the data that tells us this is a bad enough thing to vaccinate against and sure enough the data was pretty impressive 13,000 hospitalizations in that 12 to 17 year old group 127 deaths um, this is you know more impact than h1n1 influenza when that was a novel virus that circulated the world um, and then the, the MIS-C, the multi-inflammatory syndrome of children, which is kind of this like scary thing that can come after you have COVID and it can come after you've had asymptomatic or mild COVID. Like you just lost your, your sense of taste and smell and people say, see, my kid didn't do so bad at all. And then bam, three to six weeks later, you can get this vasculitis where all the blood vessels in your body, which is basically everywhere blood vessels go, can have inflammation, cause clots. So we'll see kids in our ICU with uh, brain bleeds because a, a clot has formed or a, a vessel has ruptured in their brain or heart attacks or heart uh, arrhythmias or blood infections from, from this. And so these are this is what was in our hospital, in our ICU just last week. So these are fresh in my mind. Yes, last week we had... 12 kids in, in the hospital, six of them were in the ICU and three of them had um, Missy, like I'm describing to you now. So, so that is a, you know, a secondary infection or a secondary inflammatory problem that after even mild COVID can, can really be terrible. And the average age of that Missy is nine, but what they showed today was that teenagers are much sicker. They're more in the ICU. They get much more severe diseases like I just described. And all those kids I described were 13, uh, 15, 16, and 17. So they're all age eligible for vaccine now. And um, that's the thing that just breaks my heart. The other two points I'll just point out before I stop on this is that really, again, impacting Hispanics and Blacks, 63% of kids with severe, um, with Missy are, are kids of color. And then um, about 70% of teenagers with this get admitted to the ICU and 2% will die of it. So my bottom line question is, if you have a safe vaccine that will prevent this kind of heartache to even one family, why wouldn't you use this vaccine? And that's what we have. We have a safe vaccine that is going to prevent this kind of heartache from families. Yeah, I agree. And I've seen in my clinic, um, I've had a patient with the MIS-C, I've had hospitalizations, I've had some sick kids that didn't have to get hospitalized. The When I look at the numbers, and Patsy, correct me if I mess anything up, but my impression is that you know, what you'll hear from people who are against immunizing these adolescents is, well, the death rate is low. Why would you immunize with something that we can't, you know, we can't prove that there aren't going to be rare events in the larger population in this age group um, with the vaccine. But that death rate is still far above the average flu season. It's still above the number of deaths that we're seeing uh, from flu year in, year out. The hospitalizations are high, the cumulative hospitalizations. So even though if you get COVID as a kid, you're less likely to end up in the hospital than if you get, co if you get flu as a kid. 
this is my understanding, the hospitalization rate is lower, but COVID is You're right. spreading quickly. Yes. It's spreading despite distancing. It's spreading despite mask use. It's spreading, whereas flu is stopped by these things. Very seems to be very handily. So there's so much of this happening. Kids are getting sick. Lots of kids are getting this. And unlike flu, we know of these long-term inflammatory effects are happening. And, and I had just been reading the article and tweeted it about how uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, one of their studies showed universal inflammation and damage to blood vessels from COVID, regardless of disease severity. We're seeing in young adults, heart inflammation long-term or lung inflammation long-term. These are not things that are good for long-term health outcomes. Influenza is not good either, right. but it's, we're not seeing that this specific, you know, scary inflammation uh, kind of damage going on. There's every good reason to immunize against this and protect your kid against this. Even if you're not particularly worried that your child's going to have the worst of the worst outcomes. Um, but there's every good reason. Yeah. It's really true. And I think it, it, exactly. And I think, you know, people say, well, that those are the worst cases and, and you're, you're fear mongering. And, you know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, this is scary. This is, you know, I've been in infectious disease for 34 years at Children's and I yeah. have never seen such a wicked virus as this because it has, it sneaks up on you. It has this A to Z thing. Like you can have it and not even know you have it, or you can have it and be fighting for your life in the ICU and kind of everything in between. Um, And then the long term, they talk today about kids do get, um, you know, sort of the long hauler that they don't really recover quickly, that there's some neurological uh, impact that you have that brain fog. Um, And we're, we're still kind of learning a lot about the long term impact. And, you know, when you're a teenager, and you have, you know, a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, you, you, that heart needs to last yeah. you a long time. And so what is the, what is the impact going to be to that heart after, after damage like that? So again, I just think it's, uh, we are, it is a phenomenal scientific wonder that we have the incredible vaccines that we have right now. So I feel, I feel really good about today's vote to get those 12 and overs vaccinated. I do too. And so I was hoping you could take us through a little bit that vote. Um, You mentioned it was unanimous, except for the one person who recused themselves. What about the evidence was so compelling that made it in some ways this easy thing for people to agree on so that it could be recommended for kids? Yeah. So I think there was a lot of the, the data that leaned on the original clinical trials in they, they used a comparator group of the 18 to 25 year olds who were in the original trials. And there were a lot of them. And that whole trial had 40,000 people in it, half of whom got vaccine and half got placebo. And we've been using this vaccine now for uh, over a year. I mean, the clinical trial started, you know, in January. So we're over a year of using this. So we have a lot of real world experience as well. So there was a, this sort of mountain of, of uh, efficacy, effectiveness in real world safety. And then they took this sort of what seems to some people like a lot smaller. So it's 2,200 people. It is a lot smaller, but you don't need another 40,000 people. You need to say in these 2,200 kids, half of whom got a saline uh, uh, water shot and half of whom got the vaccine, 
what what do they look like? Well, their antibody levels were equal and better than the comparator group that 18 to 25. There's the immediate sort of, you know, immune reactions that you have, those side effects that your immune system's really busy taking that antigen in where you've, you've got arm soreness, you've got fatigue. Uh, it was remarkably similar, almost identical numbers. Um, and so, and then we've been using this for a year. So it just gives you a lot of confidence that the data was, was so extremely close and even in, uh, in some ways better than it was for um, the, the antibody levels. So that I think was as people going in had seen some preliminary data. And then of course we, we get our slide sets just a couple of days in advance, get to look at those. Um, and then the 15 voting members, um, take the lead from the COVID vaccine work group, who also does a lot more intense deliberations and they bring their recommendation. Um, they bring their what's called grade where they'll, you know, sort of pick apart, you know, uh, what is the cost effectiveness? What is the, you know, reduction of harm? What is the benefit? Weigh it all out. And um, it, was, it was pretty straightforward. This is the right thing to do. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Cause I think that's the number one question that I start to see as well, okay. How do we know that this is safe because we have this lower number of participants? And I think explaining that, and I started to read a bit about the, the, the way that extrapolation can be used in that way when you have comparator groups. And I think that that's really important for everybody to know about that. Yes, it's smaller, uh, smaller numbers in a, in a smaller age range. I mean, and when I explain this to other people too, I mentioned, oh yeah, there's 40,000 people, but that's from 16 to infinity. <laughs> so yeah, you can quickly get a lot of people there. Here we have to use a little bit more efficient type of studies where we can, we may not be able to get those large numbers in this period of time, but we can use other kind of statistical methods to compare those to the groups that we know uh, have demonstrated safety. Right. And it has a cool name. They call it immunobridging. It is cool. Yeah. So you take what you already know, you take the principles, you take what you know about safety, you take what you know about immune response, you take what you know about, uh, you know, reactogenicity right after you get it, and you apply it to a, another group. And when it all looks really similar, you can say, well, in this smaller group that was identical to the larger group, you can sort of bridge the fact that it will be uh, very similar, as, especially as we roll out to the larger population. Fabulous. So that's amazing. I love that. And I love hearing you talk about that. One thing that you mentioned in there that people might have been surprised about was the work group. Yeah. And that, you know, you're, you're a person who knows really in all sorts of depth how ACIP works. I sure do. And a lot of people don't. In fact, I've been yelling at my radio and TV for a few months now, every time they're like the CDC committee, I'm like, ah, they're not from the <laughs> CDC. They're independent. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could describe for us from an insider's perspective, what ACIP is and sort of some broad strokes about work groups and how you work and how much time and effort goes into that ACIP work. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take it from the beginning. So when Pfizer says that we want to give this vaccine to 12 to 15 year olds, we have the data to prove it. The first stop is they, they file an application to the FDA. FDA 
took about three weeks. And normally, you know, when people say, oh, this is going so fast, normally they'd be like, yeah, okay, send it in. We'll let you know in, you know, six months, a year. Um, But this one is, you know, they turned it around in three weeks. In the first large group, um, that 40,000 trial, that went to the group that you're thinking of that's an independent, it's called VRPAC. So um, that's the Vaccine-Related Biologicals Advisory Committee. That is what Paul Offit's on and other incredibly amazing virologists and vaccinologists, and they are not associated with any government agency or any manufacturer. They are, in fact, a truly independent body. Now, they did not take this 12 to 15-year-old data because they're like, well, we kind of already looked at all this with the 40,000 and it was so similar. They're like, yeah, we're good. So we didn't even go to VRPAC. It went straight to uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is a CDC committee. So we're we're not independent. We are an advisory group to the director of the CDC. And there is a, um, there's CDC staff that lead it, but also uh, private sector. So it's co-led by Dr. Uh, Jose Romero, just has been doing such a marvelous job. There's the 15 voting members that represent, you know, all kinds of people from all over the country. They're mostly physicians. Uh, We always have a nurse. We always have a a person like Karen, who is a a public uh, person, not in any kind of um, medical field uh, that speaks on behalf of the the public or an institution that is um, advocating for the health of children and adults. And those 15 people have a big responsibility. They they, um, all vote. Around that table is about, I forget what we're up to now, maybe 40 liaison groups. I am one of those um, liaison members that represents professional societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, family practice, nurse practitioners. All of us then do our do our dues with um, work groups. So there's a lot of different work groups. I'm on the influenza work group. I'm on, you know, that colorful schedule that you love to hate. I'm on the schedule group. You can tell me if you don't like the purple and the red lines and those things. Um, and there is a COVID, there's been a COVID vaccine work group that I've been meeting multiple times a week. So led by um, a CDC uh, staffer who does all the hard, heavy lifting and getting things in order, but it's mostly non-CDC uh, members and, um, and you know, folks in the public that really drill down on the data. So that's a, it's, and then, you know, we just calculated today, we've worked five years worth of meetings in the last year. So we usually meet three times a year and we've had, I think it's over 15 meetings now. And I I also want to say for people who think that we're all getting rich off this, uh, zero. I've been, I was the voting member from 2004 to 2008, zero pennies have I taken for any of that. All of this is volunteer time. And in fact, I thought it was, I got a chuckle when I went there, they passed around a little envelope for your lunch money. When you, um, when you are a voting member, they will bring you lunch, but you pay for it. So uh, they passed around your milk money, your milk money envelope. That is how, like, there is no, nobody getting paid to do this. It is all volunteer work. Yes, that's exactly what a shill would say. So thank you for playing just that clear, role. Just clarifying. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can see through those. That's right. Okay. Oh, the, the so, lunch money envelope. I just always laugh at that. <laughs> so there are a few other, uh, some other decisions made today. Or yes. So the concomitant administration and lack of like no no further need for um, 
the 15 day, 14 day kind of waiting period. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that was a little bit of a surprise for for most people. Um, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics and CDC must have been talking about it because they were they knew that the AAP had a prepared statement and they um, uh, released that statement after the meeting. Um, but I think that they're the having that bubble around COVID vaccine two weeks before, two weeks after that you can't have any other vaccines was kind of like, well, just this is what we're gonna start with out of an abundance of caution. Cause we don't, we haven't studied them together. We need to acknowledge that and we need to get some experience with this. Um, but in, in all um, analysis from a scientific viewpoint, we know that inactivated vaccines, which COVID is an inactivated vaccine, it's not a live vaccine like varicella um, or measles, it is inactivated that you can give inactivated vaccines together the same day. You can give them you know, one week, two weeks, three weeks apart. It doesn't mess up with how your immune system recognizes it. So there will be studies. We want the manufacturers and they heard that loud and clear today. We need you to do some of these studies um, to look at your vaccines along with other vaccines. But just in terms of kind of pr scientific principles, I don't think many of us are that concerned about you know, what this may be, but it is true. We don't know because there are no big studies and we would like to have some studies. The, the downside is again, risk benefit and all we decide the downside is, is we need kids to be vaccinated. We need these 12 to 15 year olds to be vaccinated. They're also getting ready to go to sports camps and they're getting ready to go to, you know, uh, you know, slumber parties and things like that. They, they're they doing their, their back to school physicals. Well, this is like prime immunization time, right? In, in primary care coming up in the summer. Um, and so, I mean, I've been saying for many, many months to my teams, you know, get these kids in here, the 11 and ups and do that 11 year, 12 year old platform and get them caught up on that. Cause as soon as this COVID vaccine gets approved, we wanna make sure that we do that. So that is now allowable. And um, you can give them on the same day. You can give them, you know, there's not the two weeks before or after. Um, and it's really especially if there's somebody who's quite delayed in their vaccines or um, someone that you're afraid is not going to come back um, and, or someone who's at high risk for one of the diseases that you're trying to prevent. Yeah. I mean, I've already had the situation at least uh, several times where I've said, you know what, we're going to wait on your your routine vaccines for in a 16 year old uh, their meningitis vaccines because right now that risk of COVID is is higher so as soon as you can get this COVID vaccine your two doses and then two weeks after that then we'll get you right back in and there are people that I know and I know they're going to get those shots but it definitely puts uh, a doctor uh, a provider in a difficult position when you know we're risking like okay we want to get this kid immunized for COVID but we're worried about follow-up and are they going to get the other shots that they're supposed to get? So I think that's extremely relieving to a lot of us in pediatrics. So I'm going to ask you a question from a parent perspective, because I think with a lot of us, you know, when you bring your baby in, you get your baby vaccinated, like it's hard and they cry and you feel bad and they feel cruddy, but you know, also babies kind of always cry and you're always kind of feeling bad by the time they're 11, 12 years old, you know, when they don't feel good, they're kind of mean and terrible. And so I think if you're like me 
or other parents, one of the worries about giving those vaccines together might be, you know, first of all, I felt cruddy when I got it. Um, I was actually listening to an ACIP meeting all day, the day after I got my second COVID shot and it took a very lovely nap in the middle. Um, you know, if you're younger, wouldn't you feel cruddier? And then if you put like an HPV and a meningitis and a Tdap shot on top of it, aren't they just going to be like, oh, now I am a total mess. I'm making your life completely uncomfortable because I feel awful. Yeah. So the, let's talk about that. So the, what we know is that kids in that 12 to 15 year age group have remarkably similar feelings after the COVID vaccine that you just described. So we who have already had this and had some of these symptoms, we have to pull out our empathy card um, when our kid's moody and grumpy and, you know, like, yeah, I kind of remember feeling like that. I just wanted to sleep. You're tired. You you're, might be achy. Um, so for these teenagers in the study, it was it was the same. So 66% of them had fatigue and 64% had headache, 41% had chills, 32% had muscle pain. So if they kind of want to go home and go to bed and, you know, close the door and not talk to you, well, that is their age, their developmental stage, yes, but it they also just got a vaccine where they're, what all that is, is their immune system is really working hard so that all that those lymphocytes coming out of the bone marrow, um, just, you know, ready to do its job is big time work. And so that does make you tired. Um, their arm soreness was um, as high, 87% as, as adults. So, you know, sometimes that age group can be a little bit of drama queens. I only had daughters, so I don't know about boys, but um, although I'm about to have a grandson, so I'm going to need to take some tips. For yeah, care. no, boy, boys too, boys too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, so um, I think your second part of that question is important, though, too, and that is, you know, do you want to just do COVID now and then all these other ones later? And uh, there was a very wise public health nurse that I worked with many, many years ago. And she used to say to parents, you know, let's just call it, this is the day you get to just rest and get them all done uh, because it's not going to overwhelm your immune system. It's not going to, you know, be worse if you do one versus two versus three versus four. Let's just make one day where you need to kind of hunker down. And I think that is the right approach. You, you, if you separate them out, it's just more days where you don't feel so good. For sure. Um, I, I agree. It's I, you know, I, the same sort of advice was given to me when I had to get my wisdom teeth out. Like, why would you just do two? If you do the first two, you'll never do the second two. So just do them all. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Nathan, what are you hearing from parents on that kind of a, you know, multiple doses or what's your approach? Well, you know, it was only today that this was announced. So I really haven't fielded any questions. Well, actually, that's not true. I did field a question on that from a parent who was specifically asking about the, I got a message asking about like, do we have to space out? What about getting the shot? The birthday is here. The shots do here. And I was like, it's okay. We can do it. If we can do it all together. That's fine. So that was nice. Um, in general, I've been you know pleased to find that the patients and families that come and see me they're very interested in getting their teens immunized against covid i've had some good enthusiasm on the part of the teens themselves sometimes more i've had the situation where a teen was really interested and the parent not so much uh and we've had all kinds of great conversations about those uh topics so um i think it's been great 
the most frustrating thing in the world to me is that I can't give it when they're ready to get their COVID vaccine that I have to, fortunately now I can, our greater health system, there's availability. And so I can get them scheduled, but it's off site where they're giving the shots. So I can't even kind of walk them to the, or, you know, somebody can't, they can't just go immediately on site to where the vaccines Mm -hmm. are. Um, There's of course, logistical issues with it. Even a clinic as large as ours at blank children's, um, you know, there's that risk of waste at the end of the day, cracking open uh, a new set of six or whatever from a dose from a vial and then um, not being able to give those. Um, and all those other logistic things with the freezer and everything. But the, right. I, I, I feel like with vaccinations starting to slow down, I, I just can't help but feel the number one thing that we can be doing with all the information that we know about vaccine hesitancy. And Siri just apparently thought I was talking to her. No, Siri. Um, Edit that out, Kevin. No, you can leave that in, Kevin. It's fine. <laughs> but with everything we know about vaccine hesitancy, we know that... Uh, that that a person's provider that their medical provider is a person is one of the people that they trust the most and i really think that if we can have those conversations and then immediately be able to give a vaccine that would do wonders for increasing vaccination rates in adults and and kids totally and i asked a question for you today all of all of you in primary care um i asked uh dr doran fink uh from the fda they kind of just sort of brushed by it and they didn't give any details, but they talked about, you know, the uh, request for considering, um, you know, new storage and handling temperature. So you don't have to have that ultra cold that you Mm -hmm. might be able to keep it in a regular freezer. Um, And then also about doses that are not so massive that you're not getting, you know, thousands of them in one in one time, or maybe not so many doses in one vial that you're not wasting so much. So mm-hmm. I asked, um, so um, is there any information on the timeline of when the changes to the ultra cold storage would be happening and um, when uh, possible uh, vial sizes would change, things like that? No, we do not have information to share at this time. That's too bad. Yeah. I- I really They're feel considering like it though. They are. And I, I do think it's going to be around the corner. They just are not in a place where they could say it publicly. But once that happens, I think it will be uh, coming out to primary care clinics. We're in the same place in Minnesota where we have three big centralized clinics that are in the hospital. Um, one is in a mobile clinic uh, out in our the west side of, uh, of St. Paul. Um, and our, you know, our primary care providers are just itching to, you know, be giving it to their own patients. So uh, I think I think we're going to be there probably within the next month. Interesting. Fun fact about the west side of St. Paul is it's actually in the southern part of St. Paul, but it's called the west side because it's west of the Mississippi River. Yes, that's one of the kooky things about St. Paul, right? Right. And even though it's west of the Mississippi River at that part, it's actually south of it. <laughs> okay. I don't understand your state. <laughs> um, I want to ask a question that, that uh, goes to timelines for parents. Um, folks are asking about the uh, emergency use authorization and a couple of things. First of all, when is it going to be a regular authorization, right? When is it going to be approved? And I know that's FDA, not ACIP. Um, but also, secondly, um, when can my two-year-old get the vaccine is a question I got. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, um, so EUA, I think for those who have been in that um, 18 or over, 16 and over, um, I think that is going to be sooner than later. So they've, they've applied to um, go for full approval and drop the EUA in that age group. Um, and it really is all about how many doses and for how many months we've been giving it and we're really approaching, uh, approaching that. So for this age group, the 12 to 15, we're kind of just getting started. So this will be under an EUA for several months. Um, for the younger kids, all three of the manufacturers have studies underway um, in younger kids. They're all at different um, places. Um, I would say that for um, now that we have the 12 and over Yahoo, the next group then will go down to probably, you know, two to five up to 11. And then there'll be a six month through two years. So probably another two, two chunks of age groups that, um, uh, that probably, you know, the, the age group right below what we just signed off on today, that five through 11, I don't know if they're gonna go down to two to 11 or five to 11. That age group, I think we will be vaccinating in 2021 as well. Um, the little ones, six months to two years, we'll probably get some data on them by the end of the year, maybe into early 2022. So I think maybe all kids uh, either end of this year, early next year. Yeah, Moderna's got kind of an interesting study there. They're looking at a dose study right now in the six months to, to uh, two-year-olds, a 25 microgram, 50 microgram, 100 microgram, and seeing, you know, sort of the Goldilocks approach, which, you know, which is the dose that is just right for that age group. So we'll, uh, we'll hear about that. And then they'll go another six months or so in whatever the dose is that they decide on. They, they will do a similar trial as, as um, we saw today. So, you know, a lot of questions that we're getting from parents are about predicting the future. And I think one of the things that uh, you've learned on, on your time at ACIP is that predicting the future is not a great thing to do that generally speaking, you want to make decisions based on the data that you actually have in front of you. So I really appreciate you, you know, helping us look at what's to come, um, even if it wasn't so much a prediction. Um, but I do, you know, a lot of people are just asking, like, when is my life going to be back to normal? And, and we can't make those predictions. But Along that line, I'm wondering if you can share with us things that you have been able to get back because you've been vaccinated and what you hope other people can get back to. Yeah, I, I kind of started this new phrase. It just sort of came out of my mouth and it rhymed. And I, and I said, we need to vaccinate to celebrate. And I kind of feel like, you know, that I've been saying for a long time, the, the way you get out of a pandemic is one arm at a time. You can't do like a big text blast. You can't do a big, you know, social media, you know, concert and now boom, we're all good again. You, you really need one arm at a time. So that's why this is hard and it's slow, but we have made really good progress. I have, I have felt hope in the last, you know, month or two here that I hadn't felt, you know, before, before that, especially before January, I was just like, oh boy, we are not cooperating as a country. And, you know, we are not working on what we need to do. 
Um, I, I do think that, you know, with now this 12 and over, we now have 85% of the country is now eligible. Now that doesn't mean that 85% of the country is going to get vaccinated, but we're going to, the more we have eligible, the more we can get, get vaccinated, the closer to, um, celebrating we, we will get. I, I think that, you know, one of the thing the numbers that I like to watch is that percent positive. So what, what percent positive is happening in your school or in your community, your state or in the country, you know, and there were times where like Florida was up at 29% positive or some wild number like that. Um, California, 22%, you know, we, we got up to something like 14% positive in, in Minnesota. And, and that our kind of, you know, guide was to sort of think about getting schools back to normal and things like that were under 5%. And I think we've been around 3.2% the last week or so. Um, so those are, those are good indicators that, you know, make me feel, make me feel hopeful. How about you guys? Yeah. Nathan, what have you regained in your life or in the lives of the people you care about? Uh, the first major thing that I'm going to regain is that we're going to have in-person Dungeons and Dragons for the first time, uh, uh this weekend. So I am a quarantine D and Deer here. I started. We started our group uh, during quarantine. We've been doing Dungeons and Dragons every week. I am a uh, Dragonborn Paladin, uh, and uh, we're doing that next week for the first time because everybody's vaccinated and similar other things. Okay, starting to, you know, my friends are vaccinated. We're going to start doing our routine stuff. Um, we're still going to be cautious. We're not planning on doing indoor dining. We're going to do some outdoor patio stuff. We're going to do some modifications, but it's going to be the kind of, I love being outside on a patio anyway. I'd rather eat outside any day of the week. So I'm really excited about all that. And my kids are going to start to uh, be able to do a lot of the stuff that they're excited to do this summer too. So all that's coming back and coming back safely. So great. Congratulations. So great. That's amazing. Yeah. Dinner parties. That's what I, I like. I like cooking and I love having people over. We, I, we have an old house. It's a hundred years old this year and a big dining room and just having people laughing. And, you know, it's just, I have missed it so much. And I was just saying to some girlfriends, like, I, I really want to have you guys over and they're all vaccinated. And I said, I just have to warn you the minute I hug you, I'm going to burst into tears. <laughs> I will be so joyful. I'm just going to be a hot mess. It's for sure. Yeah. I was able to go to my book club. We had it outdoors, mm -hmm. but we've been having these sort of depressing Zoom book clubs, right? Mm -hmm. And we finally had our first in-person one. And we were so like, it's like we hadn't seen each other in 20 years. We were so like ridiculously excited. We're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> It's like when the Shiler sisters get together in Hamilton and hadn't seen each other. Exactly. And you just, just scream yeah. and you can't Skylar control sisters. yourself. Uh. Or the SNL skit last weekend. It was oh, hilarious. The social awkwardness of when you get back together <laughs> again. Yeah, there was a lot of that too. I, I did um I did tell people that I had to go pee pee. And I was like, oh my gosh, why would I say that to an adult <laughs> human? Uh, I've been following if you follow the Holderness family stuff did you see yes. their vaccination day thing where he's all excited to go out and do all these stuff and she's kind of like uh, I don't want to leave and it's all done to the tune of, of um, do you want to build a snowman is it do you want to build a snowman yeah yes it oh is. it's yeah. the other is it yeah I'm getting them yeah it is yes 
Yeah. One of those yeah, frozen. Yeah, they're songs. funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's fantastic. Okay. Patsy, is there anything we forgot to ask you? Oh, I think just when are we going to get to see each other in person? That's the only thing, right? I mean, that's the thing is we definitely, that's why I decided to send out that email about the vaccine lunch club. I said, we got to get the, the club back together. I don't know if we're going to be at Digidio's, but I, you know, Digidio's does have a patio now. They just added one in their parking lot. So maybe we can go to Digidio's. Outdoors is great. Yeah, Minnesota yeah. And, and Iowa, we have short, we have uh, long winters and short summers. So it'll be great to be outside. Right. Um, okay, well, edit that out, Kevin, because I don't want people stalking us at our lunch date. Yeah, yes, right. Okay. Well, fabulous. Um, Patsy, thank you so much for joining us. You know, a sincere thank you, uh, not only for talking to us today, but for all the service you've done over the years through ACIP. And, you know, people don't realize Patsy has led the way through three big measles outbreaks in the state of Minnesota. She is really a a force of nature. And we're all so lucky that she uh, represents nurse practitioners on ACIP because she really brings that compassion that nurses have and that science savvy that nurses practitioners have and is a great partner along with the other doctors and nurses on the committee. So Thank you for that. And thank you for being here, Patsy. You guys, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And really and truly, thank you, Nathan, for all the children you touch every day and their parents and families and the patience and humor with which you do your job and the science and love that you keep all those kids healthy in Iowa. I just admire your work. And Karen Ernst, wow, you are a force of nature. Voices for Vaccines, what great work you do. And I I really like uh, partnering with both of you. So. Everything. Thank you so much, Patsy. Um, Thank you. With that, I just want to. Mm, I'm a puddle. How about you? <laughs> I know. This is talking with you guys is always so great. Um, with that, we're going to um, thank everyone at home for listening to remind everybody that the, you still have work to do. You still have to go out and talk to your friends and family about getting vaccinated. You got to bring your kids in. You got to get them excited about that. Ask them to talk to their friends. We all have a role to play. And with that, my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. It was not in fact, do you want to build a snowman? It was for the first time in forever was the song that was parodied oh. that I was referring to. And you can find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD and you can find me my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. And thank you for listening. To learn more, visit Faxtalk.org.